You're listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. The Gospel of John, in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, which I took to be kind of the summary statement of the Gospel, says that Jesus did, said and did many other things uh, that aren't written down in the Gospel of John, but what was written down was written down so that you may hear it, and that hearing it you may believe it, and that believing it you might receive eternal life. So that the Gospel of John comes to us kind of filled with trial imagery or courtroom imagery. Um, A lot of this has kind of been Christianized, so it's difficult for us to hear it as actually trial or courtroom imagery. We kind of hear it um, as kind of just Christian talk, uh, discussion about confession or witness or belief or unbelief. So if I said, if someone said to me when I was, you know, in the youth group as a kid, hey, we're going to go witnessing this Friday night. Uh, Well, that meant, you know, we're going to load up in the church bus and kind of go down to the mall and we're going to have these tracks and going to pass them out and say, you know, do you know Jesus? Except that witnessing in the Gospel of John isn't quite so kind of at the mall evangelistic as it is just kind of as a legal kind of metaphor. That is, people are being called to the witness stand. They're going to testify. They're going to give their testimony as to what they've seen. And so the Gospel of John comes to us very episodically. Um, There's Jesus and the disciples, and we see these different characters. And we've kind of looked at several of them over the the last few weeks. Uh, Nicodemus and the woman at the well. Uh, the man uh, who was paralyzed and the man born blind, uh, Mary and Martha, um, Jesus' mom and his beloved disciple. Well, today we're actually getting to a section of the Gospel of John that actually is a trial. Eventually, Jesus was put on trial. In fact, he was kind of tried twice. So I guess this is before double jeopardy. and double jeopardy, by the way, is not something on the, on the show jeopardy. It means that you can't be tried a second time, right? Yes. Thank you, Alan. <laughs> Looked at our attorney there. Um, and so he's tried before kind of the Jewish leadership. Uh, eventually, they take him to Caiaphas, the high priest. And then later, he's tried by Pilate, uh, the Roman governor. So we've titled uh, today's sermon... The politician and the priest. Uh, The politician is Pilate, and the priest is Caiaphas. Now, uh, Pilate and Caiaphas are a little different than the other characters that we've looked at so far, and in so much as they're not just bearing witness to Jesus, they're kind of serving as a judge for Jesus. Uh, which is interesting. So all the other characters we've looked at so far were witnesses. They too could be witnesses in certain ways, but they also kind of double, do a dual role. Uh, They serve as judge. Um, Caiaphas, of course, will find Jesus guilty and want him sentenced to death. 
Uh, Pilate, interestingly enough, uh, will find him not guilty, yet still sentences him to death, uh, which is a crazy part of how that story goes. So the high priest at the time of Jesus was a man by the name of Caiaphas. And the story of Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane and him being taken uh, eventually to, to Caiaphas' house in order to be tried, there's lots of things that don't seem to sit well uh, with uh, typical Jewish behavior at the time. Like a capital case would not be tried at night, and this was tried at night. Um, the, the people who would be there uh, didn't seem to quite match up. It has led some historians to imagine that perhaps the, the story is somehow somewhat fabricated. I tend to think that it was probably less formal. Like when people uh, get heated, they sometimes do things that are outside the bounds of normal behavior. Uh, they're not always acting the way they typically would. And that's, that's how I think has happened. I think that Jesus' ministry had so kind of rubbed the Jewish leadership the wrong way and they saw it actually as potentially dangerous um, that they, they felt like they were compelled to kind of try Jesus. In, in John uh, chapter 18, verse 14, it says this about Caiaphas. It says, Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was better to have one person die for the people. What an ironic statement that the high priest would say, it would be better for this one person to die for the sake of the people. Like, better for him to die than all of us to die. Like, if we let him have his ministry and let it kind of run its course, it's going to get us all killed. Like, you, you can't be doing this kind of uh, insurrection, kind of rebellious uh, revolution and not get crushed by the Romans. Like, we need to move forward gently, right? We need to kind of make peace with our captors. This is not the time to be resisting Rome in those kinds of ways. So if we have someone who people think is the Christ, well, surely that's not the case, because if that were the case, God would have already delivered us, and all this is going to get us is ruin. So it's better for this one would-be Messiah to die than for all of us to die. Well, of course, the truth, the theological truth there is that we killed Jesus and God resurrected him and then used that event to offer us all forgiveness and salvation. Right? So it actually kind of was better. Like Caiaphas was right in a way that I don't think he could have possibly have known. Later in the Gospel, it's 19, verse 6, it says, When the chief priest and the police, and the police saw him, they shouted, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no fault in him. Interesting. So you had the high priest kind of shouting out, crucify him, crucify him. Here's the last thing we hear from the priest. This comes in 9.15. It says, they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate asked them, shall I crucify your king? 
the chief priest said, we have no king but the emperor. What an indictment. So you, you have the Roman governor, right? This Roman politician saying, should I crucify the king of the Jews? And they're saying, we, we don't have a king. Our only king is your king. The Roman emperor is our king. So this strikes me in a lot of ways. In the ways in which we sometimes identify with our own politics. Right? That we allow that to kind of identify us in ways that I think can be quite unhealthy. I'm not saying that Christians can't be involved in politics at all. I think that's a bit naive. But I think sometimes that what lies at the deepest part of who we are is our ideologies. And then our politics or our religion or how we act in society are just ways that those get expressed. So, for example, I'm ultimately committed to my conservatism. So, therefore, I'm conservative politically and I'm conservative religiously and I'm conservative socially. Or I'll be, I'll be committed to my uh, liberalism, my progressivism, right? And so I find ways for that to be expressed personally or politically or religiously or socially. But I think that's dangerous. I think the, our ultimate identity shouldn't be in our ideological perspectives, but should be with our commitment to Jesus, Right? My ultimate identity is that I'm committed to Christ. I'm a Christ follower. And then that should have uh, effect on the way then that I identif identify personally or socially or politically or, uh, or other religiously. Yeah? So that's, that's it. So when we have the chief priests, plural here, the, the chief priest and his comrades kind of saying, we have no king but Caesar. It is, it is a terrible kind of indictment that we, we allow our politics to be the ultimate um, identifier of who we are. Now, this story really gets interesting when we start to look at this character, Pilate. So Pilate was just quasi-successful. I mean, he's a Roman governor, but he's the governor of a pretty remote part of the empire. So it's not like he's kind of in the center of things, right? He's not in Rome. He's not in uh, Corinth. He's not in Alexandria. He's not in some big city. He's kind of, kind of you know, out of the way area, right? So it's not like he was the mayor of New York or Chicago or Los Angeles or Houston. It's more like being the mayor of, you know, Lakeland or Bartow, or Auburndale, or Plant City, or Mulberry. Yeah. If you know the mayor of Mulberry, does Mulberry have a mayor? Okay. Um, if, you, if you know... Right. So, um, no, no disrespect. My point simply is that Pilate is the governor of of ancient Palestine, which would have been considered kind of an out-of-the-way place. And he got himself into a fair amount of trouble at different times. Um, the temple tax 
was both because they didn't have a separation of kind of religion and state. The tax that came in for the temple helped the temple, but the temple was both a civic building and a religious building. And so that money could be used for a variety of things. So Pilate took the temple tax and used it to build an aqueduct. But of course, some of the religious folks were like, why are we building the aqueduct with the temple money? So that kind of got him in some trouble. And then there was a group of pilgrims from Galilee that were making their way to Jerusalem to worship at a festival. And as they're coming up from Jericho, they've made their way down the Jordan Valley, and as they're coming up from Jericho, they got mistaken for uh, some rebels, and they thought they were just in disguise, and they, got, they all got slaughtered. And so Pilate is taking the heat from that. Um, he, he had this... <laughs> He had this idea that he'd go into the temple and he would put up these large shields that kind of show the Roman emperor and the Roman military, like kind of like waving, you know, waving a flag. Except that, you know, if you're occupying another people group, wa- waving your nation's flag at their most holy site, you know, not the most endearing act someone's ever done. So Pilate kind of find, finds himself. Um, in some kind of political upheaval. And so he, he lives in a different city. The, the capital city for the Romans was Caesarea. And he's made his way to Jerusalem, right? It's, it would be like, um, you know, it would be like our politicians showing up to a church service on Christmas or Easter, trying to kind of go with the flow of, of, the, of the religion of the day, yeah? So he's, he's shown up in Jerusalem, and now he's got the, the high priest, right, which is an, a significant character, right, in the story, bringing to him this um, potential uh, rebel, this kind of revolutionary leader who they're saying is claiming things that could get you killed, could get you executed, right, that he's the, the king of the Jews, um, let's look just at a couple of uh, places here. Uh, in, let's see, 1833, it says this. Pilate entered the headquarters again and summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? What a question. Later in verse, it's about halfway through verse 38, it says, And after he said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no fault in this man. In, in these chapters, in 18 and 19, Peter, like the Peter, like Simon Peter, three times will say, I don't know him. Three times he'll deny that he actually knows Jesus. In this same two chapters, three times, Pilate will say, I find no fault in him. How is it that a judge who finds no fault in a criminal will eventually... Uh, sentence the criminal to the death penalty. Peter's saying, I don't know him, I don't know him, I don't know him. The high priest is saying, it's better for one person to die than all of us. All of the priests together are saying, crucify him, crucify him. And then again, you get the priest saying, we have no king but Caesar. And the Roman governor, a politician, from Rome, says, I find no fault in him. 
It's, it's amazing. I'd like to actually read it. We won't have this on the screen, so just, just listen along. I want to read a, a bit more of this uh, to you. I'm going I'm to back up just a bit. Then they took Jesus from Caiaphas's to Pilate's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the headquarters so as to avoid ritual defilement and to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered, If this man were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. And the Jews replied, We are not permitted to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill what Jesus had said when he indicated the kind of death he was to die. Then Pilate, we read this bit, then Pilate entered the headquarters again and summoned Jesus and said, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus asked, or answered, Do you ask this on your own or did others tell you about me? Replied, said, Pilate said, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and your chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate answered him, So, you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said, What is the truth? So two things. The first, what does it mean when Jesus says that his kingdom is not of this world? I don't think it means that his kingdom's not in this world. It means it's a different kind of kingdom. If his kingdom was like the world's kingdom, then he would have instructed his followers to pick up weapons and fight the Romans. But his kingdom is not of this world. It's not from here. It's from somewhere else. The place that it's from, right, is the spiritual realm of heaven. And the way of being in the world for Jesus is a way of nonviolence. Jesus is not coming to destroy. Jesus is coming to redeem. He's coming to restore. And this is exactly what we see him doing though certainly in unexpected ways. The other is this. Pilate is standing before God in the flesh, before the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He's standing before what truth looks like when it's in the flesh. And he asks the question, What's true? What is the truth? I heard uh, Chris say this uh, earlier this summer. We were speaking at a pastor's conference. In, in the Apostles' Creed, other than Jesus, there are only two other people that are named. One is Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the other is Pilate. Like, I believe in Jesus Christ, the only son, only begotten Son, was hell's ago. I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, uh, conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. So we get these kind of two characters there, right? We get Mary, who is kind of from the lowest possible stance. She's young, she's female, and God 
comes to her and she's uh, open, right? She says, let it be. Though she does say, in, in a very kind of prophetic way, that the, the coming of the one who literally will come from her, right, is, is not great news for those who are in power, right? It will dismantle them, their systems, but it is great news for everyone else. Pilate, right, who is the only other uh, person mentioned in the creed, sees Jesus and he says three times, I find no fault in him. Well, that's, that's the wrong question. He's already answering the wrong question. I find no fault. No, no one's asking, what did Jesus do wrong? I mean, Pilate's asking that, of course. But Pilate's been conditioned so much, right? He's, he's kind of a man of privilege. He's the judge. The only way he can see Jesus is, have you done right or wrong? And so, between that limited option, he says, it doesn't look to me like you've done anything wrong. He has the giver of life in front of him. He has the one in whom and through whom all things were made and sustained. He has the very personification of truth. And all he can say is, as far as I can tell, you haven't done anything wrong. Done anything wrong. He's the one that came to give us life. So Pilate's confession, as it turns out, calling the judge to the witness stand. I find no fault in him, but I don't find what he doesn't find, right? is what is good in him. He doesn't, he doesn't actually find the truth about Jesus. The truth about Jesus is not limited to the fact that he had done nothing wrong. The truth about Jesus is the fact that he had done everything right and had done it the right way and had done it for the right reasons. Any of you remember those WWJD bracelets? Don't raise your hands if you have one on. Uh, I'm not a big fan. I'm really not. I find it too thin. It tries to take the richness and thickness of the Christian faith and reduce it down to some ethical decision you make in some situation. Like, what would Jesus do? But it doesn't ask, how would Jesus do it? When would Jesus do it? It doesn't ask why would Jesus do it. It also doesn't ask what Jesus wouldn't do. It doesn't ask what Jesus would say or not say or how he would say it or when he would say it. It doesn't take into the, the, to the account the kind of depth of what the faith is. The WWJD phenomenon, I think, runs the risk of being like Pilate, reducing Jesus down to has he done something right or wrong. Right? I find no fault. Yeah. We're more than that. We're so much more than that. The faith is, is deep and rich. It's full. It encompasses all of our lives. It's a way of being in the world. It's a way of, of, of love and mercy and forgiveness 
and self-sacrifice. It's a justice that doesn't simply punish, but that restores. This is the faith. This is the one who stood before Pilate. Pilate, um, later on, he's, you know, Pilate's moving back and forth between talking with Jesus and talking with the Jewish leadership. And as it turns out, uh, this, this comes in verse 7, the Jews said, or Pilate said, this is, he says, take him, yourselves, take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no case against him. That's the third time Paul, that Pilate said, I find no fault in him. The Jews answered, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he claims to be the son of God. And now Pilate's like, oh no, what have I done? In verse 8 of 19, it says this, Now when Pilate heard this, when he heard that the Jews were mad, not because they thought he's pretending to be their king, but because they say Jesus is claiming to be the Son of God. Now when Pilate heard this, he was more afraid than ever. He entered into his headquarters again and he asked Jesus, Where are you from? (laughs) But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate therefore said to him, Do not refuse to speak to me. Do you not know that I have the power to release you and the power to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no power over me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on Pilate tried to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who claims to be a king sets himself against the emperor. Once again, truth in the most ironic of forms. Everyone who claims to be the Messiah, everyone who claims to be a king, everyone who claims to be the president sets themselves up against the president that we know or the king that we know or the Caesar that we know. For the New Testament to say that Jesus is Lord is to also say, to imply, that Caesar is not. That this gospel is different than that gospel. That this, that this peace is a different type of peace. Pax Romana was a, a phrase that they used to talk about the peace that the Roman Empire had brought, but it had brought it about through the sword. And the peace of Christ comes to us by another way. Jesus doesn't come with a sword and kill anyone. Jesus comes as the sacrificial lamb and dies. And as as such offers us peace and a way to be in the world. Now I'm not saying it's a way that's easy to live. I'm not even saying it's a way that I even typically live. Right? But I I think it is the standard that we're called to. It's the story that we're being invited into. So there's various ways that we could um, realize this or practice this. And it's the table, I think, that is, that is the most kind of significant symbol. Well, there's two big ones, really. I think, I think the cross and the empty tomb on the one hand, and I think the table on the other. Right? That Jesus was willing to die and that God resurrected him. 
and that the table was open to everyone, to Pharisees and Sadducees, to tax collectors and prostitutes, to children, to disciples, to us. As we come to the table today, I want you to think, this is not my table. This is not Oasis's table. This is the Lord's table. He is our host. It's Jesus who invites us, who says, come and eat with me. Taste my flesh. Drink my blood. Behold what you are, but become what you receive. Behold what you are, but become what you receive. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.